Welcome to Patient Voices by Ampersand Health, a podcast championing the experiences and opinions of the most important members of any healthcare ecosystem. Here, we speak with patients managing inflammatory conditions. They lead the conversation about their care, exploring what has changed and what has yet to change. We invite guest appearances from clinicians and other healthcare experts from the industry to join us in conversation. And I'm your host, Ahuti Rai. My guests for episode five are Clive McIntyre and Dr. Yellis Pryor. Clive lives with rheumatoid arthritis. He is an active member of Ampersand's patient panel and is a keen supporter of and contributor to Ampersand's Health Hub events. Yelis is a registered occupational therapist, a researcher, and also lives with rheumatoid arthritis. Yelis has completed postgraduate certificates in cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and teaching in academic practice, and knows a great deal about alternative therapies, those which are not drug-related. We had a wonderful, energizing discussion. Clive is an optimistic, positive patient that, in his own words, did not want to be a victim of his condition and is always searching for the next marginal gain to improve his condition. We discussed the various therapies on offer to patients, and Clive offered his experiences and shared a lot of his personal feelings towards self-management and his mindset when it comes to trying something new. Yellis has a powerful perspective, informed by being a patient of the condition herself and helping so many others like herself. She really does practice what she preaches and has an abundance of energy and practical guidance to share. Both she and Clive are pro-digital, as you will hear throughout the conversation. And what I liked in particular was their focus on the responsible use of tech in a complex domain where many factors are at play. We could have talked forever, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Today, we are joined by Clive McIntyre and Dr. Yellis Pryor. Welcome. And it always makes for a good starting place to get to know our guests a little bit more. So Clive, over to you if we can learn a bit more about you. Thank you. Uh, I've had um, arthritis now for 30 something years. Uh, but I think I knew that was coming because my mother had it, so I was always likely to get it. And that was always something I said to my mother, don't worry, by the time I get it, there'll be a cure. Well, we're not there yet, are we? But we're a lot further down the road than we would have been without the research that's gone off, because by now, at my age, in my, I'm 67, my mother was in a wheelchair and her hands were quite claw-like and she had trouble holding things. So I'm far better than that. I can walk and I can hold things uh, despite the arthritis. Uh, I was first diagnosed uh, 30-something years ago, so I'm in my 30s, uh, at the same time as I uh, took on a, uh, my own pub to run. Uh, so I just landed myself with the most physically demanding, mentally demanding, multi-skilled job I could think of, which was a great deal of fun, but I'd also got something else to deal with that I didn't expect. Uh, it was about my fourth career. There's a time in the law, uh, 
time in sales and marketing, uh, time in management uh, and management training and uh, regional manager. So all sorts of bits and bobs. Um, but I think being multi-skilled has helped me be uh, fairly adaptive. So that's been a help with RA because uh, I've had to be adaptive into different careers. So I've picked up the skill of of looking for ways I can adapt in my personal life. And so RA has had a massive impact, but I've been able to mitigate various parts of it. Thank you, Clive. And Yeliz. Hi, uh, I'm Yeliz Pryor. Uh, originally, I'm from Istanbul, Turkey. Um, so I'm a clinical academic researcher. Uh, I'm an occupational therapist who later also postgraduately trained in cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness-based therapies and things like uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, what we call ACT. Um, I lived with chronic conditions all my life. Uh, I was diagnosed with um, juvenile form of inflammatory arthritis at the age of seven and then had years of um, uh, treatment. Uh, then I become a mother of two at the age of 24 and everything was fine then later I got again inflammatory arthritis uh, diagnosis the adult form specifically ankylosis and spondylitis so I've always wanted to work in rheumatology and that's what I do uh, I'm a clinical academic lead of the rheumatology department at Mid Cheshire uh, NHS Trust Hospitals in Crewe uh, in Cheshire and uh, my research is all about rehabilitation of rheumatic and musculoskeletal conditions, mostly around um, eliciting behavior change uh, and therapeutic strategies for people to help themselves. So about self-management using digital therapeutics like the My Arthritis app. So I was really excited to join the Empress and Health team to um, co-create the um, parts of the program for the myarthritis um, up, and I'm really proud of it because all my patients use it and I get really good um, feedback from it. And uh, I hear that people without arthritis and with other conditions, uh, diabetes and stuff are using it because it's so applicable to uh, management of long-term conditions and how you can help yourself um, by changing the way you think, you act how your life can change. So I'm quite excited to be here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Yeliz. And that's actually set us up really nicely just to launch into the topic of self-management and how therapies um, like ACT can help with that. And Clive, you mentioned something in your introduction about, you know, the expectation that perhaps having understood that you were likely, you were predisposed to having the condition, um, you know, the expectation that perhaps by that time there'd be a cure for it. And of course, here we are, and we're talking about not a cure, but we're talking about lots, lots of options uh, for self-management. Um, so it's not just drug therapies that are on offer um, to patients. So I guess, Clive, an interesting place perhaps to start from a patient perspective is how you were introduced to other types of therapies. Um, you know, is that something you researched 
yourself? Were you introduced to these through uh, medical professionals? If you could tell us a little bit more, because here you are today using some of these therapies. I think the starting point for me is, is as I mentioned about uh, uh, career experience and, and training. So part of my management training was uh, I, I would I picked up things like uh, if you're doing doing smart plans, so I can specific, measurable, achievable, etc. Um, uh, we we had slightly different for the R&T, T was trackable or timed, um, but uh, it, 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 that taught me an approach to dealing with the subject. Uh, and also I was uh, quite aware of, of um, the possibility of using meditation to help with sleep. And so I think I've just been receptive and, and my approach has always been a um, perhaps just by habit or by the way I am, I look for things that can affect, which is my approach to management and to working with people. Uh, so when you when you take that approach and apply it to your condition, you are looking for ways that you can find a little gain, a little help. So I'm, I've been quite open all the way through to using anything that I think can help. Uh, bit like the cycling, uh, the British Olympic cycling, where they went for marginal gains. But when you put a lot of marginal gains together, you make a big difference. And that can be true with your arthritis. Because if you can help your feet in some way, if you can use uh, uh, a therapy or uh, look after your well-being or use hypnotherapy or apps, which is the big step forward, you can get access to other therapies and other ways of looking at your arthritis and your condition that help you cope and help you manage. So overall, put all the bits together and you can get a gain, a significant gain in your well-being, both mentally and physically. And that's really where I come from. And that's, um, I find that really interesting, Clive, because here we are talking about, or partly here to talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. And some of the things I've heard you say there very much bring to life the fact that there seems to have been an early acceptance on your part about the condition. And then you yourself have thought about, okay, what's my plan of action? You know, what kind of outcomes am I seeking for myself? And then what are the different things that are going to help me get there, which are all forms of commitment in, in different shapes and forms. So I find it quite interesting that without actually defining acceptance and commitment, you know, you've kind of given us a sense of that's the journey that you've actually traveled um, for yourself. Um, yeah, very much so. Um, there's a couple of key things I think I've thought about this and a couple of these things that I decided at some point that I now realize I did. I decided that I was not going to be a victim of RA. I was, if I could call myself a sufferer, but I just have it. It's something I have. And I treat it as I have it like I could be left-handed or or I could have blonde hair or even I could have hair now. Um, <laughs> so so it's just something that I, I, I my approach, I'm not going to suffer from it. And as you can tell, because I'm here, I, I'm not one for being quiet. I do tend to talk a lot. And because of that, I do tend to complain when things aren't right. And I, I really do support all 
patients, everybody with any condition in not in, in them not being quiet. Don't be passive is one thing I'm I'm passionate about because if you don't tell your medical team what you're going through, then how can they do anything about it? And I do still find a lot of people who think they have to put up with stuff. No, we're better than that. We don't have to put up with it because there may be something that can be done. And if you don't ask, how are you going to find out? So that's it. Don't be passive. Don't be a victim. Amazing. And, you know, Yeliz, I don't want to um, hold you back anymore because I've seen you in action and I know you've got lots of gems and you are probably just waiting to kind of say some stuff in response to what we've just heard from Clive. So I'm not even going to ask you a question. Just tell us what tell us what you're thinking. Um, how does all of this chime with you? Well, I mean, Clive is a an excellent example of someone who is determined, someone who is accepted and uh, have a plan and just doesn't let them stop uh, arthritis or any other chronic condition to do that. And that's where we're going to get with everybody. You know, um, I always hear people asking me, how do you do this? You know, you've got all these conditions and you've got kids and you've got dogs and you've got two, three different jobs. How do you do it? And and people tend to define themselves. You know, there's there's always this um, need for saying, oh, oh, I, I'm a warrior or, oh, you know, I'm a resilient person or not resilient person or I'm goal driven. And then uh, maybe that's been told to them at some point in their life when they were age eight at school, saying that, well, you are you're a warrior or you're not good at this or... And then they believe that story and just kind of move on through life. Um, what I believe is that we can be who we want to be and we can change the way we do we do things and we think about things. And as Clive really rightly put, um, having a condition like inflammatory arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, which is very debilitating, so I'm not minimizing it, don't get me wrong, is a big deal. Like I have to inject myself every couple of weeks and think about, you know, taking my medication and through my job if I have to go to countries like I have to sort of like Cambodia then I have to come up with my medication to have a live vaccination so it does make you uh, you have to be a lot more organized uh, thought in advance and um, be in touch with your needs and uh, your body so this is why I started with the mindfulness uh, based cognitive behavioral therapies and ACT is also a kindred psychotherapy to uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So what it does is all about um, diffusing negative emotions and um, accepting things as it is in the present moment rather than dwelling on them and, and acting on a plan that you think is you know, will take you to the other side. Yeah, so it's all about sort of changing the way you look at things. And I believe if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will change. I mean, there's so many positive things come out of my life for having this inflammatory arthritis from a young age. I wouldn't be who I am now if I didn't. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's the reason I become a therapist. It's the reason I become a researcher. And uh, it put me in touch with lovely people like Clive, and they're talking about the apps, especially following the COVID period when we have all been, you know, isolated, down and cut off from um, not just healthcare in person, but, you know, our loved ones. Uh, things like up 
brought communities together. So I'm really, really pleased with what Ampris and Health did because they didn't just um, produce the app and release it freely available, uh, but also having this community events where we come together, talk to each other. Like I've met Clive a few times now online. We, we haven't we have yet to meet face to face, but I already feel like I know him. And I'm sure he does as well, especially listening to me countless times on the courses talking. Uh, but it's so important to do things online now. And, and we have shown that, and there's the research coming fast and thick about how online therapies, as long as there is that interaction from the patient, and uh, as long as the programs are developed with patient involvement and engagement, so they're contextual, acceptable, and relevant to them, they can be just as effective and perhaps more accessible than uh, therapeutic strategies available in person because you can just go on an app anytime freely access it from anywhere in the world so that's interesting actually it was an area I was going to probe into around your experience of uh, delivering therapy digitally versus um, face-to-face in person because you obviously do operate in a clinical setting also which I imagine allows you to to contrast a face-to-face um, and you make a very good point around access and how it does take away some of the barriers. Of course, we need to be sensitive to the fact that it also introduces some barriers because not everybody has the means uh, to have the digital access. Um, Yelis, one of the things that I'm really curious about, actually, is um, because you are an expert in many different types of therapy, how do you decide um, where to where to point patients to in terms of which types of therapies? Is this something that's a matter of choice? And I'll be interested to hear Clive's view on this in a moment as well. That is this a is this a matter of just personal choice? Something really calls out to you. Something feels normal, natural, um, or is there something more scientific around the choice of therapy? Okay, I mean, the answer to this is uh, quite long one. I'll try to put it in a nutshell because this is what I teach to students for over a term of four months, how to become, uh, you know, your clinical reasoning to actually identify what is best for the patient. Um, I think most important thing is shared decision-making. So the patient um, has to involve with what would suit them best. So when I do, I do a lot of online therapies, one-to-one therapies and group therapies, as well as in clinics. And and they, as you said, they both have pros and cons. Uh, But I think uh, for the sins of online therapy in terms of, yes, there there is a systematic um, exclusion of certain demographics who don't have access to, um, you know, these technologies that needs, that's different uh, issue that we need to look at. And and also health literacy, you need need certain level of health literacy and digital literacy to be able to, even if you have an access to these technologies to be able to, to operate um, but yeah that aside for those people who can access uh, it's uh, what I would do normally I would uh, in an initial assessment get to know get to know my patients in terms of um, you know what kind of behavioral and thought patterns they have and identify problems and uh, and then discuss with them the different approaches we can take and decide together which approach to take because you need to have the buy-in 
uh, from the patient, or I don't like the word patient actually, let's say from the client uh, or people with um, uh, chronic conditions to say, well, this is what would suit me. It's a bit like doing a diet. You know, some people would do low carb, which I can't, I love my carbs. So I do intermittent fasting. So I can actually, in a smaller window, stuff my face with bread, pasta, and all things carb, and then not eat for 18 hours. So it's, it's, there's, we all want to get to somewhere. First, you need to know where you want to get to, because if you don't know where you want to get to, you might end up anywhere. And then you have to decide, okay, am I going to take the bus, train or drive or walk there? You choose your own route. So this is different for, of course, for digital technologies and what's available to uh, people with chronic conditions when they're looking at. And this is why what we've done in the myarthritis app, there's a lot of different approaches. So there's uh, CBT approaches, there's uh, ACT uh, approaches, there's mindfulness, there's goal setting, there's motivational interviewing. So um, I think the more uh, things that you try, as Clyde was saying, he's open to try everything, that you're more likely to find what works for you. And you might find that several different things work for you in different times of your life. Um, and most importantly, I always try to communicate what everybody needs to learn is self-compassion and mindful, being mindful of not just your bodily ailments, but being mindful of your moods. And then you can pick up things before they got much worse if you have a negative thought patterns. And you can pick them up like low hanging fruit and just look at them and say, okay, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to flourish it, get out of you know control, or I'm just going to nip it in the head as they appear? Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. And I'm interested to hear Clive's view on this as well, um, because you've heard a, a therapist's perspective, um, conscious decision making, but also shared decision making um, with somebody living with a condition. And what's been your experience, Clive, I guess, in terms of navigating the different options available to you and your personal experience of what what really has seems to have worked for you, what, what you've really latched onto? Yeah, I think it's, it may well be different for different people, but I, I guess over time I might have cherry-picked a few things off the tree you know, that was hanging fruit and I've liked that bit and I've took it. And, uh, and then from ACT I might have taken something and from uh, uh, another therapy I've looked at or done a little course on as a put my toe in the water, see what I think. I think I've absorbed little bits, but that's part of the plan, isn't it? That, that, that I'm looking for all these gains, as I said before, and, um, and I won't be passive about this. So I can use little bits of therapy. And when I hear Yelly is talking about uh, certain therapies, in particular when she's doing ACT, but if she's talking about... Uh, another form of therapy uh, and mindfulness and, and the cognitive therapies, I always hear little bits now that I think, oh, oh, yeah, I've picked up on that before and I'm doing that. So I guess I've put together my suite of things that that um, that help me. Uh, and so I've just, just been a sponge and took look, look for things that help because it's all about getting on with things. I... Like most of us, and in fact, probably 95% of us through the lockdown period, uh, the, uh, speaking to someone that's obviously clinically vulnerable, uh, so lockdown was lockdown, and when it wasn't lockdown, it's still virtually lockdown to me. 
because what do you do? You do less and you comfort eat, which is okay up to a point, because if you need it, that's fine. I can live with that, especially if it's called ice cream. I don't have a I don't have a beer belly, but I do have a very large ice cream store that I carry around with me. Uh, but there's a point where you've got to do something about it. So now I have done something about it. I have started walking. I use uh, an app to measure my uh, steps and exercise level. And in the last uh, 12 weeks, I've lost two and a half kilos. My belt has gone in uh, uh, one, one notch on my belt. That's the, the bit I use more than measure. I don't like scales. They frighten you sometimes. But if, if your belt's moving the right way, then that's a good sign. Uh, uh, and not only have I dealt with that bit, but I've also a heart condition, which of course is connected to, to RA. Um, and, uh, or I should explain that, I suppose that, that you are more likely with uh, an inflammatory condition to have heart trouble, um, because that again is soft tissue that can be affected by the disease. Um, so I've had a triple bypass, I need to look after my heart health. And the walking now has been successful to the point where I didn't have any hairs on my lower legs because the, the blood supply to them was not sufficient to grow hairs. So it does what it needs to do and says, hairs, we're not going to do that at the moment. But now I've got stubble. So <laughs> I have hair regrowth on my lower legs, clearly sign that my circulation has improved and I feel better. So that was a conscious decision. What am I going to do? I'm going to do something about it. I've got to say, it's not easy, but then... I actually think most things that are worth having aren't easy. That's why they're worth having. If they were easy, everybody would have them, and it's not right. You know, I don't want that. So, so I've made a decision, a conscious decision, and I've done something about it. And, you know, that makes you feel better because you achieve something. And the goals don't have to be massive. They can be quite simple goals. But to achieve something doesn't have to make you feel better. And, Clive... What is it in your pathway of care that was provided by your GP or the specialist nurse or your consultant that could have helped along the way? You have obviously been a very proactive patient, you know, taking ownership and figuring out for yourself other things. Um but what could have helped? What about, I'm thinking about all of those people that perhaps haven't got that intrinsic motivation yet, you know, that we need to kind of find those people that uh, are feeling a little bit helpless. Is there anything in your experience um, that we could be doing in terms of our healthcare delivery, more mainstream, that can encourage people and reach the people that haven't quite got there to the start line themselves? Yeah, that gets increasingly hard in a, in a digital age where we're, we're so focused on, on a digital age. But equally, I think there's a point to which we, we, we sort of assume it's easy for everybody. So we need to encourage people to put their, uh, again, put their toes in the water to try the digital age. As a lady in the same block of flats as I'm in, that, um, which are all adapted flats, so we we're all can cope quite easily with conditions. Uh, and she's, was it the big one? I think it was the big 90 she just had. And lockdown came along. So it was uh, a daughter and son-in-law talking to her. And she tries to go online. And now she's telling us, 
how wonderful it is and why on earth didn't she do it before? But it was just this thing about it's a big bogey monster and I might break it and those sort of attitudes. We don't always say how easy it is. Well, if kids can do it, we can do it. But we tend, a lot of us tend to be a bit nervous of, oh, I don't know if I can try this or, or then there's this thing about I can't be bothered with it. I might not get it right or something. It's, it's getting it wrong that gives you the best lessons of how to use it right. So you can't break it, just do it. So I think anything that encourages people. I also think that some of the, the decisions I made were, were pre-digital because if before we had digital, we had libraries. And I've always been a great lover of libraries. So if I wanted to look something up, I would go to a library. So there are times when I did that to learn about uh, ways to cope and to manage. Uh, but also, as you can tell a bit, when I'm talking to uh, healthcare professionals, I'm cheeky enough to say, why? Why can't I do this? Why can't I have this? What can you do about this? And that is so important to, to talk to uh, your team and to, um, and to understand their problems a little bit, but just mainly to say how you are. So I think we just need to encourage communication. And even if it's to ask awkward questions, as in, why haven't you referred me to orthotics? Which is a great one for people to say, or, or is can I be referred to orthotics? Uh, I wish I had known more about my heart health and the likelihood of, of my suffering through RA because I didn't early on enough to take positive action and change my diet. If I had known, Knowing me, I'd have done something about it. But by the time I found out, it was too late. So I think we've got to make sure that information is out there. And that's the great thing about apps. It is a digital age, and we need to explore ways of promoting apps and their content through non-digital means, as in podcasts, but also as in print media, as in articles, in the ways that other people are not currently using apps. Uh, we can reach them and, and get out to them to say, come on board or get your friend to print something out. But there's help here. And that's the most important thing. We can all help each other. Can I just come in there, Ahuti? Is, um, I think it's a really important point that Clive made in terms of uh, information being out there. But uh, talking about the healthcare teams, and I don't think it's cheeky at all to actually ask, why am I doing this? Why am I not doing this? Why are you? Because it's, it's, it is your health and it's your life, isn't it? And uh, however trained health professionals are, they might be busy seeing one patient after another. Sometimes you forget who you told what. So never feel um, you know, awkward about saying, well, can I, I didn't answer, you mentioned this, biologics, for example. What is it? You know, how is that different from uh, classical disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, for example, DMRs like metotrexate or sulfasalazine? Why there is a different criteria? How can I step up? You know, most people don't understand. And um, I think for our sins, health professionals, we tend to use a lot of uh, acronyms, uh, sort of a lot of... And we, we presume, we assume that because the information is there, so you might be given a booklet, someone who just been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Here you go. There is the um, versus arthritis booklet on how you can help yourself. And I did, I did a, a quite a lot of research, for example, in terms of work rehabilitation. Most people 
so we know that people with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, um, are at um, risk of um, uh, becoming uh, work disabled within five years of being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Why aren't we talking about this in the clinics? Why aren't we asking people, do you have issues at work? Are you struggling? Uh, we tend to see people in the hospitals, in therapies, after they go on long-term off sick, perhaps, if they're lucky, um, to how they can help themselves. But it's much harder to get back to work once you've been off sick long-term uh, to do return to work intervention than doing a job retention intervention, for example, when you're at work. And then there's all this comorbidities and multimorbidities when you think about like risk of cardiovascular disease. Why is it so important with rheumatoid arthritis or other inflammatory conditions to retain your muscle mass and do some exercise, uh, not just for your cardiovascular health, but also for you know retaining your muscles because muscle wastage is very, very common in RA. And so patient education is it goes both ways because you need to also as a health professional establish the health literacy of the patient, not just the digital literacy, whether they have access to digital technologies. So because they might ask, oh, do you have a smartphone? Oh, then you can download this app. They might have a smartphone and just might just use it for WhatsApp to talk to their family and it might find the use of app quite daunting, especially that you have to do enter quite a lot of information, do interaction. So ask that one extra question, how do you feel about using the app? What, what help would you need? Because help is out there and available. There are YouTube videos, there are help tutorials, but people don't know it's there and how they can access it and how easy it is. But as health professionals, I see that's our responsibility to not make presumptions about uh, what the patient uh, saying to us about what they have access to, what they've used before, but also how they feel about it. They might not like the idea of using an app. Yeah. So, so what else they can do to help themselves? So, uh, yeah, having information is that one thing. Using that information successfully is another, and that there's a big gap on that that we need to identify and help. Exactly. And the way that you have described it there, Yeliz, is it's very much an exploration, isn't it? It's very much a, um, a little bit of a fact-finding exercise almost with the patient just to get to know them generally in terms of what does their life look like, what's important to them in their life. Um, you know, have they considered potential implications of their condition, which they may not yet be feeling, but they can take action now to prevent those implications further down the line. Uh, and indeed, why aren't we having some of those conversations, especially when it Im impacts employment status and ability to, to carry on working? You know, why, why aren't employers having some of those conversations, you know, as well? Um, so where do these conversations take place? If it's not in a clinical setting with a healthcare team, and, and I'm really kind of encouraging us to, to just speak openly and also be wacky with your ideas as well here. But, you know, where should these conversations be taking place? Uh, where do they currently take place? Uh, what needs to change? I think uh, I'm sufficiently wacky for, for most people that I, I can come up with ideas and I've just had one because uh, I'm thinking about, uh, it's not, not all a wacky idea of mine, but uh, I'm also uh, these days an, an NRAS ambassador. 
which is part of me not being too passive and thinking I need to give something back. I'm also a volunteer uh, patient at the medical school. Uh, so I, 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 it's something I can do to give back. Um, but through NRAS, uh, the National uh, RA Society, um, we're launching or pro promoting a Right Start scheme where hospitals refer a newly diagnosed patient to uh, NRAS and uh, with their consent, they then can have a phone call that discuss uh, all the questions and problems that they have that they should have asked and meant to ask but didn't when they were given this information because we all come out of doctors and consultant surgeries and think, oh, I didn't say that or what did that mean? So we have a service of following up, sending information, chance to have a one-to-one -one chat with a fellow sufferer. Those are the ways that volunteering can help get information out. And when you think of the time that people sit in a waiting room, waiting to see, now that could be a digital waiting room or it can be a physical one, but you wait to see a consultant and there's that time there. Volunteers available in there just to talk to people and say, have you thought of this? Have you tried this? Why don't you take this to look at? Or why don't you get your son and daughter, grandkids to run the app for you? You know, th there's all sorts of things they can do if we can get people talking to each other. And I don't think that's too wacky, but volunteering is quite a thing that we've, um, that's become um, more prevalent because of dealing with COVID. And if we, 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 we've become more caring in, in certain ways. And I think that's that's a way we can help people because helping people makes us feel good as well. Yeah, very often the uh, best ideas are common sense, Clive. <laughs> uh, and sadly, it's not very common, though. <laughs> no, exactly. Sorry, Elise, you were about to say something. Now. No, no, I, absolutely. I think, well, patient and public involvement and engagement is the most important thing to make this change in terms of where these conversations are taking place and between who. And, and I know that ANRAS, the National Rheumatoid Arthritis Society and other arthritis charities like Versa Arthritis are doing a lot of good work with volunteers. Uh, but also NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, you know, encourage uh, people with long-term conditions like RA to take part in research studies um, and this this is not volunteering necessarily i mean they're volunteering but they also their time is compensated because they're um, they're actually not just volunteering but they're working as a colleague engaging with the whole study from the the, the um, idea development to design to delivery because the more that um, the research and healthcare delivery is intertwined uh, with the, what the patients think is most important to them, uh, there's more applicable, it will be more accessible and used because you could have the most excellent service, but if it's not engaging patients, if it's not gonna be used, then it's not gonna be any good for you. So normally, you know, we talk about like things like work rehabilitation, I'm in the middle of the second trial uh, funded by Bert versus arthritis where we're trialing work rehabilitation intervention against the usual care in the NHS and we did the feasibility trial before and um, so we talk within academia and between clinicians a lot we should be asking the work question uh, in the rheumatology clinics and this and that and it's getting whilst research is happening it's getting more and more often these questions are asked so we are taking more interest in patients quality of life as a whole more holistic approach rather than just 
whether they have pain and fatigue or bowel problems and whether they 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 are exercising you know the 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 what what was traditionally most important because it might be that i mean as an occupational therapist for example i know that it might be most important to someone might be that being able to knit or being able to you know the play with their grandchildren as opposed to going back to work so you need to find out what is important to that person and then do a more tailored personalized intervention that is whole mdt is going on like Clyde was saying, why didn't you, um, you know, uh, refer me to orthotist? You know, some people don't even know that they could be referred to orthotist or they could see a podiatrist for a proper biomechanical assessment for their feet. Sometimes people go to rheumatology clinics, nobody looks at their feet when, you know, you just go through their hands and dust, but that's completely um, overlooked. So, yes, I think the more patients are able to verbalize what's important to them, what's bothering them, more we can actually develop personalized individualized therapy the better the health and quality of life outcomes will be that actually takes me back to a point that you both made a little bit early which i'd like to come back to because just now yellies you made the very important point around looking at the person as a whole and thinking about things holistically and you have both mentioned the point around implications of one condition on other aspects of health. So we talked about the example of heart health and how that's more likely if you have an inflammatory condition. And I'd like to understand your perspectives on this topic of comorbidities and whole person health when it comes to the digital experience, because you both are very pro-digital. You know, you're helping create and you're also helping... Uh, from from an application perspective to really kind of bring it to life. Um, And I'm wondering what it is we need to be thinking about and doing in a broader sense um, so that we are considering the impact on patients and perhaps even clinicians, actually, when it comes to using a digital solution for a specific condition and yet there's more to that patient than just that one condition and I'm really interested in this because you both have experience of using digital you know in in your respective day-to-day lives so yeah please do share what it is you think we need to start thinking about overcoming when it comes to comorbidities whole person health and digital solutions I, I do think we have come through uh, an incredible experience and crisis uh, and uh, learning phase with COVID because well-being was already being discussed before. And one of the wonderful things about, uh, about the modern generation is that they are not afraid to discuss mental health and mental well-being, which was long a uh, long, long time has just been a, a subject you really didn't mention. Uh, and I know from personal experience of that because I was diagnosed as a child with depression, which caused an awful lot of upset and distress, and particularly to my parents, who were poor people were trying to work out why on earth they have a child that was depressed and what were they doing. Uh, in my case, it was nothing they were doing. I just don't make enough serotonin. But uh, it took 25 years to work that out because we just didn't know. 
uh, and for the next 25 years, I had to have a, you had to be a very good friend of mine for me to tell you, because most people didn't understand. Whereas now I can do, I do uh, currently doing online sessions with medical students and bless them after they've done, or whilst they're doing all the physical questions about how are you managing with this, how are you doing it, lo and behold, they come out and say, how's your mental well-being? How are you coping? How are you looking after yourself? Now, I can tell you from three years ago when I did the sessions with the young students, nobody mentioned mental health and well-being. Now, it's common, they don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind. So that's a huge learning experience we've come through and a great advantage we've that, that's come out of that's the silver lining to COVID, along with many others that we're discovering with volunteers, how to develop vaccines quickly. So I, I think the important bit is that we're now much closer to looking at the whole person and looking at the impact on all of you, the holistic approach, because our acceptance has broadened that we now accept talking about it. Now, that might be an issue with some older generation, but the more it's out in the public domain about well-being, mental well-being, mental health weeks, uh, or, or just general well-being, and with campaigns by various arthritis societies that, that are aimed at looking after your well-being, I think it's much more out there now. And so I think that also spreads the fact that we can use apps to be diverse and look after other parts. I, for a long while, I've been using uh, Cardia, which is um, my own um, ability to uh, do a cardiogram, uh, digitally recorded on my phone, which helps me monitor every now and then how my, uh, how my heart health is. Uh, I, can, I do my own uh, blood pressure and I record it on an app. And if I need to share the information with somebody, I can, or with my doctor or et cetera, I can. Um, but even if I don't want to share it with somebody, I've got a record of it. Now, all that is just broadened the ability to have a holistic approach. And I just think that's that's the way we're going to develop even more um, because we've been forced to learn through COVID. I can only imagine your home screen, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might explain why, why my system's running a bit slow. <laughs> And I won't even talk about data integration across all of those apps. I'll, I'm not even going to go there. I'll allow Yelis to share her thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I think, again, Clive has brilliantly put things like mental health. When we think about comorbidities, we tend to think about cardiovascular health, obesity, you know, like the, the things that is out in the what public health uh, ministers are interested in saying, you know, we need to lose weight, we need to exercise to get our heart rate going. But actually, the, the, the biggest problem, the biggest comorbidity is mental health issues and depression. And nobody thinks of that as a comorbidity that comes along with chronic conditions. Uh, and depression and anxiety actually determines whole of your approach to like, Clive was saying that whether you want to talk about someone and if you don't talk to someone about how you're feeling, then you're less likely to find out what help is available out there. So it isolates you. So it's actually, the, to me, is the most important comorbidity to tackle because you can't address someone's uh, cardiovascular health and make them do exercise if they're depressed and if they are, um, you know, down in the dumps and isolating themselves. So, so that's, as a clinician, 
is always always my first point of call uh, to to assess. And in terms of digital technologies and how that can help, the question about the comorbidities, uh, as uh, Clive was saying, there's app for everything now. But I think uh, in terms of my arthritis app, what is good is kind of pulls it all together with the questions they're asking. So it's actually picking up on, for example, other comorbidities, whether you have issues with your mental health, whether issue you have issues, you can actually uh, link things with your health app if you have, let's say, I have an iPhone with the Apple Health, which is also tracking how much I walk, what steps I take. Uh, I've got uh, a variable watch, which uh, you know picks up on my when my heart rate is increasing. <laughs> you know, so um, you you can actually have done this trajectory that you can uh, you can communicate to your health professionals with a bit more um, meat behind your ideas, saying that look. You know, since I've started this therapy or this uh, med, um, medicine, then my function has declined. And you can see on this, you know, because that's then you're speaking the same language. You, you're talking about uh, patient-reported outcome measures, basically saying you're not just saying or trying to remember how you've been in the past six months, you know, because it depends when pe- you go to a consultation, usually every six months, if you're lucky, when you have established array, this is how you've been. And that's, Recall bias would usually be about the last couple of weeks. So if you've been good last couple of weeks, you're like, yeah, actually, I feel great. But you will forget about how the flare perhaps you had two months down the line. But if you have that objective and the um, sort of self-reported data recorded on the app, then you don't have to uh, rely on your memory or your appraisal. Similarly, if you're depressed, you'll have negative appraisal of your health and functioning and how you're doing and you might be missing all the good things that you are doing and the app could remind you that saying that well you get out of the bed this morning and you actually took the dog out so you you can see that you walked and so so it can work as a variables uh, and digital health can work as a great motivator uh, but of course then you first have to motivate yourself to use it and uh, have to overcome of all those uh, barriers that we're talking about, having access to these technologies and, and then having been able to have the skills to use them. So for me, uh, it's really important uh, as a, a researcher to actually prioritize uh, within the NHS, the uh, health inequalities, uh, during COVID, it become very apparent these health inequalities from many different aspects uh, for certain demographics, and especially older people are systematically excluded from having access to online technology. So, how can we address that? What can we do to improve um, patients' health and digital literacy? And it's our job, it's nobody else's. So it's, we can't wash our hands and say, well, all we can do is provide this service, there's stuff there, and it's people's responsibility to take care of themselves. Well, it isn't, it's our responsibility to take a holistic approach and address those difficulties. And if we can't, if we don't have the skills as health professional, because some health professionals may not have the digital skills themselves, but then knowing where to signpost them, because there's lots of, um, resources out there with patient organizations to help people to develop their skills. Well, you touched on it there, Yeliz. It was actually a a question that I was going to table, and I'm very conscious that we're pretty much out of time. But let me just uh, quickly 
ask the question to see if there's any broader perspective than what you've already shared around how ready you feel our healthcare professionals are to solve some of these digital problems, um, to accept them wholeheartedly, adopt them, you know, in, in a very kind of integrated way for new models of care. Um, what obstacles do you think we still have to overcome? And obviously, going through the pandemic the way that we've had to and seeing all of the adaptations have obviously helped. You know, it's helped to introduce technologies that have been on the shelf for 10 years already that were just being considered. Um, so, so we have seen progress. But what else do you feel, particularly um, your experience working in a clinical setting, uh, in terms of what else do you think we still need to overcome there? Well, how professionals um, whole NHS workforce had a, a very steep learning curve in the last year and a half to not just actually work under very stressful conditions, but actually adapt to uh, new ways of delivering their interventions uh, digitally. And uh, in the NHS, you know, the digital technologies doesn't always work as it should be. So there's all sorts of other uh, challenges that comes with it. But I think there, there's a work to be done. But I'm, I'm very positive that uh, we are in a much better place now after COVID or during COVID than we were before because they had to kind of go through almost like a crash course to learn. And now we have to look at how actually we can improve the, the use of these and how as we go back to uh, a normality of some sort of delivery of these health interventions, how we can actually take the best practice from remote therapies and uh, mix and match when this is, because we found that in our um, department, for example, we were able to see more patients, we were able to actually go through waiting lists more, and a lot of patients said, well, I didn't have to park, which is always a problem in parking, or oh, so more people actually want to access remote therapies now, even when going to be available face-to-face. -face. So the, the normality after COVID is not going to be the normality as we know. And we're going to, whether we like it or not, in the health system, change and be more flexible and accessible and look at our own training needs. And yeah, there's work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Clive, any final thoughts on that point there from you? I just think it's hugely encouraging because it's a, it's a forced learning curve for patients and uh, the NHS and all health professionals. But I think it's really encouraging because uh, we, we've, we've had to embrace and we found benefits. I love the ability of hospitals to sign in to the ampersand myarthritis and be a part of it and then be able to proactively see from the feedback of the app which patients need their attention quicker and which are ticking over okay and can just have a, an online appointment or a telephone one, but that means they can spend more of their quality time with the patients that desperately need it because the app's telling them that they're having flares and they're struggling. So that is just wonderful. That is targeted time that's so precious these days. So I think, I think it can only get better. I just think it's a, it's a great opportunity that's come along that, that we've had to embrace so I'm very positive about it but then again that's me I guess I'm always very positive fairly positive uh, even when I'm positive that I'm not feeling so positive today um, but I think it's just it's a great chance and 
we're going to, it's going to get better and better. And some of, of uh, us senior age uh, that tend towards the dinosaurs are going to uh, become extinct. And the newer generation is going to embrace it even more. As long as it be, we just remember to make it as easy as we can for people. Because there's nothing wrong with easy, uh, as long as it's safe and secure and, and, and improves access. You've summarised that incredibly well. It is about the responsible use of tech and we're not trying to dehumanise the experience between clinician and patient. And we've got work to do, haven't we, in building trust um, here and and helping people become comfortable uh, with this approach. And uh, clinicians have a huge responsibility on their shoulders. So uh, quite right, actually, in my view, if there's a tiny bit of resistance and reluctance, because to me, that kind of suggests, okay, well, let's just understand where that concern is coming from and let's overcome some of those anxieties and objections. But if that means that people are taking their responsibilities seriously and not wanting to kind of give it over to an app and a system to, to signal a patient that's in need of care, then uh, let's take a, an extra year or so to prove that, but not another 10, <laughs> you know, maybe not another 10. <laughs> So, um, good. Uh, well, what can I say, Clive? Is honestly, I can only imagine that our listeners will have been inspired, educated. Uh, you both have had so much to share and give, and I kind of feel if we had another hour, we would have no trouble filling it. I've got a whole long list of things that I never even got to. So, thank you to both of you for sharing so openly um, and yeah just just sharing such rich perspectives thank you so much for having us and uh, is doing this amazing podcast i just want to say thank you as well because uh, uh, an ex- accurate experience of ra is i'm currently changing meds and i have not been great the last few days with uh, side effects that i know will pass but this has cheered me up no end so thank you very much Oh, thank you, Clive. And thank you for all that you do as well for Ampersand, because, well, aside from all of your other roles uh, with NRAS and other charity organisations, you're also part of the patient panel for Ampersand. And I know that you're a very loved member of that panel and you cheer up other people. So (laughs) thank you. Um, so, Yelis, if people would like to, if our listeners would like to find you, uh, find out more about your work, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, I've got a very unusual name, so they can just type my name online and it comes with all the information. And I'm very active on social media, so on Twitter, at Yelis Pryor. Uh, so I shout out about my work a lot because I'm all about inspiring and disseminating because if we do things and nobody knows and it doesn't make any good your work definitely definitely deserves shouting out about so (laughs) thank you hi everyone thanks for listening to patient voices by ampersand health if you enjoyed it remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us across social media for educational content on the management of inflammatory conditions.